Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine where the clue is in the title and we search for the elusive and endless reasons that people get hooked on this most absurd of recreational pursuits. My name's Rod Murray and I'm your host for this regular dive into the psyche of golfers, a journey that sees us mingle with pros and duffers alike, not to mention every level of player, administrator and entrepreneur in between. On today's episode, we're going to meet a golfer who's managed to achieve something that very few do, to wit, make a living out of playing the game for more than three decades. In the brutal dog-eat-dog world of professional golf, that is an achievement in itself. And as you'd expect, David McKenzie has learned a few things along the way. We'll meet David and get some of his insights in just a moment. But first, homework, as regular listeners will know. I'll start with a special hello and big welcome to any first-time listeners. If you've only just discovered us, good to have you aboard. We hope you like what you hear. If you do, make sure to check out the back catalogue, where there are some terrific interviews with the likes of Bamboogle Dunes owner Richard Sattler, publisher of Golf Course Architecture Books, Paul Daly, and of course, three Australian Open winners in the Peters, Lonard and Senior, and 1982 champion Bob Shearer, who we spoke to alongside his wife, Cathy, a golf celebrity in her own right. Find all of that at the Golf Australia website podcast page, link in, linked in the show notes below, or do it the easy way and press subscribe in your favourite podcast app. It's free, and it means that you never have to go looking for us, or just turn up on your preferred device whenever a new episode is released. Naturally, we're also open to feedback and suggestions, and the easiest way to get in touch in this digital age is via Twitter. You can get me directly at at Rod underscore Morrie, that's M-O-R-R-I, or the show has its own handle at at Thing Golf, capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F. Alternatively, contact Golf Australia magazine on Facebook or Twitter, links in the show notes, or by good old-fashioned email to golf at golfaustralia.com. .com.au. Don't forget, you can also leave ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. But more importantly, if you do like the show, why not share it with a fellow golfer? The more the merrier is the motto we have around here. All right, enough of all that. Let's get on with what we came together to do, and that is to get the lowdown on what it takes to make a career out of professional golf. As I mentioned, David McKenzie's no household name, though most with even a passing interest in the professional game will find his name a familiar one. David's been bobbing up on leaderboards both here and overseas since the early 1990s, and at the age of 52, he continues to pay his bills based on the number of birdies and bogeys that he makes each week. Now playing the over 50s tour in America, one of the single hardest circuits to break onto in the world, it has to be said, David says he'll continue to play golf until he can find a job that pays him more. With his current qualifications, that seems an unlikely scenario in the immediate future. I sat down with David after the opening round of the Australian PGA at RACV Royal Pines on the Gold Coast, where facility manager David Hogburn kindly lent us his office to record this interview. That's the sort of generosity which deserves to be repaid. So if you're ever in the area, make the effort to follow in the footsteps of the likes of Adam Scott and have a hit at Royal Pines. Aside from a big thanks to David Hogman, I might add a special personal thanks to David himself. We originally organised to have this chat early in the week, but circumstances dictated we had to do it Thursday. You can imagine my trepidation when I arrived on the Gold Coast and checked the leaderboard, only to, to discover that my guest-to-be was six over the card through 16 holes. There's an awful lot of professionals who would, understandably, it has to be said, cancel a lengthy interview like this one, 
under those circumstances. But it's testament to David's professionalism and character that he happily turned up within an hour of signing for a 77 and subjected himself to a chat, which I hope you'll enjoy as much as I did. David McKenzie, we call the podcast The Thing About Golf. It's different things to different people. What's the thing about golf to David McKenzie? Uh, for me, it's been a job for my uh, the longest time. I enjoy the competition of it. Uh, I enjoy working hard on the range to get better, but basically I, now it's uh, it's my job. Mm-hmm. You've been at this for as a pro how many years? Uh, I was an assistant pro, 87, 88, 89. So 1990, I've been, try- I've been traveling the world trying to win money off the golf course. We'll come to some of this a bit later, but just that, doing that for 30 years and making a living, we probably underrate what that what's involved in that don't we uh yeah a lot of um yeah it's really hard um and you for myself personally i don't get a lot of uh what's the word for it a lot of attention mm-hmm. um but ultimately if you can have a job for 30 years the same job and to pay your mortgage and to do something that you live that sorry that you love to do it's a pretty good job to have and have it for 30 years. I'm Especially pretty when happy. that job's competing, David, and every week is competing. Most of us have competition at various times in our jobs, but not every week. That's madness, isn't it? Uh, well, I don't have competition every week because many weeks uh, I don't have my best results. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no actual competition going. But um, having said that, uh, yeah, the competition, and I think as, as much as anything, just trying to get the best out of yourself that you can. That's what I found my biggest challenge is just uh, there's golf courses that don't work for me. There's places that I don't like being, um, but getting my, the best that I can that week, that time, is what I like to do. It's a big travelling circus, we know that. Run us through some of the countries you've played golf in over the years, over those 30 years. Uh, okay, the vast majority has been the United States, um, obviously, but I've been to uh, what Japan, Korea, uh, China. I spent a lot of time up in China. You won Thailand. a few times in China, didn't you? Yep, won twice in China yep. in 2014. Uh, Singapore, Thailand, Hong Kong, uh, Taipei, uh, Scotland, England, Wales. Haven't been to Ireland yet. Uh, Vienna, Sweden, Spain, Italy, uh, New Zealand. Would be another one. Got to count that one. It- it's a fair old list. Most professional golfers who've been at it for more than a few years would have a similar list, wouldn't they? That's the reality of the job. Well, I guess it kind of depends on what tour you've played. Um, if you if you go straight to which is what most guys did, and will say Stuart Appleby and Robert Allenby. Well, they well actually uh, they both played in Europe as well. But um, if you go straight to America, then generally you're not going to see much of the rest of the world. Whereas if you've played in Europe, then you're going to see a whole lot more. Um, I played wherever I was able to get a game of golf, mm-hmm. and so correspondingly, I've um, I've been all over the place. Yeah. Golf's obviously your job, but what's your relationship with the game? For for most of us, it's a recreation. For some of us, it's an addiction. It's a passion. It's we think about it all the time. We want to play every day. Are you one of those professional golfers, or is have you made a a line in the sand between work and uh, do you ever play recreationally these days? Uh, occasionally, I've got a couple of friends that I like to that I'll play with. Is that different also, golf? Is that different for you? Uh, yeah. Well, they like to play – if I'm going out on a golf course like that with my friends, basically they like to have a bit of competition and they want to play for some money, whereas the way that I see it is is that, 
I don't want to have to strive to have my best score because if I if I we're playing for money and they want plenty of shots, um, then I have to actually sit down and think about what I'm going to do with each shot. I've got to grind over the putts and read them properly to make sure that you make them um, because otherwise they're serious about taking the money off you. They're not pretend. So correspondingly, I don't play a lot of uh, golf that way um, and quite often I'll go for – I'll. I'll finish in America for a week. I'll come home, get home on a Tuesday, and then fly again on a Monday and may only pick up the clubs for maybe on a Sunday or the Saturday, the two days before I leave again. I don't – they're not touched. Uh-huh. Um, so is that love affair or is uh, – Well, how did it start for you? Were you like the rest of us at the beginning and you've that relation's changed for you as you've played? Uh, yeah, most definitely. It was uh, – um, I really only took up the sport to beat my brother at it, and he uh, he started a bit before me, and he's my younger brother. Um, so he he's a golf professional as well. So, um, But I loved the challenge of it and just being on the range to beat balls to get better. Um, uh, the, the competition aspect is, is nice, um, but I just – at that time, I was just trying to get better. Now – uh, again, I, I guess I was out playing with a couple of young guys today and almost feel like I'm a spectator because I'm trying to do as well as I can. But the competition thing... It's a different game. Yeah, it? it's the, a different the, game. The flat bellies do play different. Yeah, yeah. most, most definitely. We'll come to some of that uh, in a moment. It's a big travelling circus, this. Um, we're here sitting here at the PGA, the Australian PGA. I'm not sure when this is going to go out. It might be quite a few weeks from now, but it strikes me I've done the New South Wales Open, Australian Open President's Cup, and up here for a day this week, and they're all different, but there's a bit of a sameness as well, isn't there, to this big travelling circus? Uh, Every every golf tournament, you're 100% right. Um, The golf pros know that they're going to register on a Monday and a Tuesday, so they know where they come in. They arrive, they're going to go and find where that is. They need to find where they're going to get their equipment, their golf balls for the week if you're you're a Titleist player. So you go in and find the Titleist guy. You then go to the you work out where the range is. So pretty much, it's it's a different way to to um, to get around each week, but it's very the same. You know that your tea time, you're going to have an early tea time on Thursday or a late tea time on Thursday, and then the opposite the next day. Um, so there's a very big sameness about it all. An office job, but where the office just keeps moving to a different geographic yeah, most definitely location. You touched on this earlier. You don't get a lot of publicity. Most golfers in most fields don't get a lot of publicity. We're very focused on winning in golf. Do we focus too much on winners in golf and just profile? Do a lot of guys' stories get left behind, guys with good stories? Most definitely. There's a lot of guys that uh, um, that would have some amazing stories that you've never heard of before. Um, places that they've played, things that they've done, some of the things would uh, amaze people. But because you actually haven't seen him so much on TV, there's not a lot of interest in it. And you can understand that. People are always want to be involved with the guys who are – the, number, the top 10 players in the world or the top 20 players in the world, you want to be around those guys. And that's why the President's Cup, we'll say, for example, was so uh, well attended a couple of weeks ago. Um, and that was probably because you've got some of the best players in the world. One in, unfor- and one in particular. We might well, talk about his Tiger impact on the game. Yes. But uh, when you talk about here, uh, I haven't had a really good look at the field, but we've probably only got five top 20 players in the world. Uh, we've got all the best Australian golfers, obviously. Um, and so pe- people get a little bit blasé there. They think that, you know what, there's not much that we can see. But you've probably got 
golfers who are going to be top 20 in the world playing here this week and Australians that are going, going to be doing it. It's just a matter of recognising who it's going to be. We as the public obviously look at certain golfers. Adam Scott's here this week. I would yep. put him in that category wherever Most he goes definitely. in the world. People want to go and watch him. For him, I imagine life is different to what it is for you and I. But what about amongst his peers? Does he hang in the locker room with the guys? Do you get to know those sort of – and I don't mean that as a reflection uh, on him, but I wonder what no. sort of life he has access to. Uh, no, Adam, well, I wouldn't say that I've seen Adam Adam a lot in the locker room, but Adam is such a great guy. He's just down to earth. You can have a chat with him. I was up a couple of years ago. A friend of mine was doing a charity thing with some wounded soldiers and we were playing at a golf course up at uh, Noosa Springs, I think it might have been up there. And so we had these Australian British wounded soldiers playing golf against, against each other and Adam was up there playing. And so, uh, oh, sorry, practicing. of the day, he just he, happened yeah, to be there. Most of, he was definitely just practicing there. And so um, I was helping these guys with their golf swings and stuff. And I actually said to Adam, look, if you get a chance once you've done, when, when you finish your practice and there's no pressure here, but the guys would absolutely love it if you just came over and said hello. And so sure enough, when Adam finished, he came over and said hello to the guys when they were having a drink at the bar once they finished their golf. Um, so that to me that there's no recognition for it. There's no need for him to do that sort of thing. But that's the sort of guy that he is that he'll do all that sort of stuff. Are for. they all like that? You would have been around most of the world's top players having been at it for 30 years. I'm sure yes. you've met most of them. If you get the, if you get players at the right time, uh, 100%. There aren't many. And uh, the ones that wouldn't do that, I'm not really associated with. So – um, and they're not interesting being associated with. But generally speaking, if you get the guys at the at the right time with the right question, they'll do anything for you. And I imagine different between player to player, obviously to media to player to spectator to player. There's a uh, professional respect. There, uh, most definitely, as a player, and as a uh, and I've tried to make sure that whenever I make those requests, um, that I'm not putting someone out too much because you know that. Uh, whoever it is, whether it be Jeff or Scotty or whatever it is, that they get a lot of requests. And um, if you make it as simple as you can, so many guys don't realise the power that they have just to say hello to someone, give them a golf ball, just give them a high five as they walk past them. Like kids love that and so does everyone else love that interaction. At a lesser level, you would also have this. It's a hell of a responsibility, isn't it? There will be kids out at Royal Pines today who would have followed your group they would have yep. seen professional golfers for the first time. They'd be wide-eyed. You might have even done it yourself as a kid, and you yep. know that. What an enormous thing that is. And as the players themselves have a responsibility, don't you, in that? Most definitely. I have uh, I was never necessarily super good at it, but I always recognised it. Um, and probably the last three or four years, um, I've both recognised it and I've improved on it so that as many people as I can – say thank you to, say hi to, especially the kids, and have a chat with them um, because it doesn't matter. Who, at that point, it doesn't matter who you are. Mm. Um, You're a golf had, pro. I'm a, I'm a golf pro and I'm playing in the golf tournament. Yep. Um, showing that interest makes them feel important and they think it's fantastic. Even the smaller things as thanking the volunteers that I never necessarily used to do as much as I do now. But I sort of come to realise, you know what, if they didn't love the game as much as they did, they're not going to be standing out on a tee in the heat, um, not getting fed and watered all day just for the sake of it. It's, it can be hard, I imagine, as a player, if you're a young bloke with a bit of promise and ability, you spend a lot of time, particularly in the modern era, being told how good you are and the potential riches that await, and all of that is true. It can be easy to forget 
small humanities can't it like the things you're talking about a hundred percent because you just get tunnel vision and uh and that tunnel vision is all about you golfers are incredibly selfish in that regard they, they to need be, to they? be yeah they need to be too um not that that's a knock on anyone but um you need to be singularly focused because if uh if you don't perform you don't get paid and you get paid according to how you perform so um but most definitely, I think the younger guys. And my my always thought in that regard is is that um, with the tunnel vision thing and the, the focus is that you, you know what if you think that you play your best being angry on the golf course, then why wouldn't you start off get being angry? And if you if you think you play your best when you're frustrated or whatever it is, get to the course frustrated. But if that's not how you play your best golf, if you play your best golf. That when you're smiling, when you're happy, you're having chats with your mates, why wouldn't you try and play that way all the time? And so that's been my thing is to to try and work out, well, how have I played my best? And then the whole time I'm going to try and keep myself in that sort of a mood and mindset. So your other half hopes that that's not angry and frustrated. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I I often used to uh, think that I played better with that sort of focus and quite often I'd – have an argument with a, um, <laughs> or not necessarily no, an argument, but testy exchanges with the guy not letting me park where I wanted to uh-huh. in the parking lot or the locker room attendant or someone who wanted to see my badge or something. So um, I've sort of mellowed with that sort of thing and realised that's not necessarily how I've come across angry David out there. That's not really him. He just needs that to play his best. (laughs) So forgive him uh, and let him move on. You mentioned you played with a couple of young guys today, and I was chatting with Liz Smiley this morning, whose son's Elvis is 17, oodles of talent, could probably do anything he wants in the game physically. We know there's more to it than that. What would 51-year-old David McKenzie say to 17-year-old Elvis Smiley about the journey ahead? Um. One of the biggest things you always hear all the time is uh, enjoy the journey. It's not about the destination. But well, is there I, a destination? We might talk about that a bit later. Well, the <laughs> destination is your goals sure. to achieve your goals. But ultimately, in the 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 thing about the ironic thing about that is you only really appreciate the journey if you're getting to your, to having a success of achieving your goals is actually when you achieve them. Until you achieve them, it's a tough game, and you think you've got to do all these different things instead of just enjoying what you're doing and those those results will come. But the best thing that I can say is that just to get a good team around you and uh, to keep them and be patient because it's a long game that you're playing. Uh, I'm guessing you must be, what, 17, 18? 17. 17. Hopefully you're playing the game until you're into your 40s or 50s and um, play the long game. Improve a little bit every week. Um, and as long as you're seeing progress or everything's getting better, don't put yourself on a timeline to be in a certain place when you're 18, 19, 20, 21. Uh, and the best example I give is Justin Rose, that he was a fantastic amateur, did really well in the British Open when Third, I think I he think was 18. Memory, yeah. yeah. Um, and so in which case, he must have missed cuts for maybe two to three years. 21 straight. There you His go. His first 21 cuts he missed as a pro. And so then you look at the – the progression that he had, he became number one in the world. So it's that just that patience and persistence and working on that, that climbing the ladder, mm-hmm. and some ladders are more vertical than others. Are there more distractions for young blokes now than there were for you? I look at technology and the way it's changed, not just around equipment, but things like TrackMan, working out what we know about the body, what muscles we need to work on to put the body in its best shape to play golf, the various coaching theories, and there are – Millions of them, as you would know, is there? Are there more distractions for young players in this day and age? Because there's more money to play for. 
Well, there's sort of there is more money to play for, but it's I think it's for a lesser number of players. Um, That's interesting. I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, but de- those those distractions have always been distractions, and at least now things are quantifiable. You, you can rather than where coaches previously would tell you this is how you have to do it, um, they can then show you, and whether it was up via video. And then now it's TrackMan, and then all the other devices and things that you can use. But ultimately, it still comes down to um, you being able to perform at the right time, and trusting what you're believe- what you're seeing, and what all these numbers are giving you is the right thing for you. And eventually, no matter what all the numbers say, no matter what the coaches say, um, you have to find out what works for you. And if you keep listening to other people all the time. There's at no point that you trust yourself enough for you to be at go and be your own person. So ultimately, you you amble, you sabotage your own potential. Success. Yeah. So you have to learn it at some point. Trackman is irrelevant. At some point, video is going to be irrelevant. I still have to trust the people that are around me. Um, some people got to spend a lot of time in the gym. Some people don't. I don't like the idea um, of having to fit a certain criteria to become a good golfer. You don't have to necessarily be strong and fit, although it happens more often. But there are plenty of guys that you can look at that have had a successful career, even that are still playing now. Is it Kirdesh? Kirdesh Afi Barnrat. Afi Barnrat. No Dustin fit. Johnson, is he? Exactly. And so in which case, you have to be really careful um, as a coach and even as the administrators, in my belief, to try and make sure that everyone fits into the box to fit to meet all the KPIs before you are considered to be someone who's going to be successful. Now, I think it might have been Mark Nicholas I've heard say this about cricket, that academies produce good players, but the truly special never come out of programs. So there's a you-do-you thing that I think you might be touching on there. Perhaps you've got to... I think I think it's really important the pro, the programs that and the the kind of information that they can give the kids is absolutely fantastic and it's first rate. It's information that um, has slowly got better and better and better as time goes on. But ultimately, you can you, you haven't always well. Then the example that I give is that you can tell someone give someone the information on how to fly an airplane. But that doesn't mean you've actually learned it. No. So you can give someone all this information about TrackMan or coaching or the video, where you need to be, all the balance and the muscles that you have to use, but you ha- they haven't really learned it yet. So until that person can work out how they do it and it fits their game, then it's not going to really work. There's no TrackMan on the 18th where you've got to hit it across the water with a one-shot lead or one shot behind or tied for the lead, and you know you need to hit a certain shot to a certain – there's no track man there for you, I suppose. No, and you, it, it's learning how to be comfortable in those situations. It's enjoying those situations, and those things sometimes take time to learn. Um, I get the feeling sometimes is that the golf programs, um, they're pushing these players to be better than – Better than they need to be where they or where their headspace is at right now. Their their body and their golf game may be one place, but their head is not quite there. Um, so getting those things and getting that person into the place to into the best place for their for themselves and for their golf game that's the challenge. That's the art. Do people get lost in that. We start to think of players as players and golfers. Do we forget their people and some of those needs? Most definitely, and that, but that comes down to balance as well, is that 
some people are going to have trouble traveling because they want to be at home with family and friends, and some people are more than happy to be on their own. Away from family and friends. Yeah, if family, family and friends, sort of exactly. And friends. So I've always been okay to travel on my own and to go to places on my own. Um, I don't necessarily have to have that sort of contact with people. Now, um, if you don't like that lifestyle, then you're going you're gonna to have a lot of trouble quite often. And I think that's there's a few guys that have actually who uh, – Nathan Holman, I think, won yeah, no, the Australian PGA like four years ago. I'm not sure if he's even playing golf anymore at the moment. Hardly. I interviewed him last year. Okay, there you go. Burnout, I'm not sure if it's the right word, but it's certainly – I got the feeling from Nathan that it had just sort of done something to him. Mm-hmm. That he were, And there were other things in life he just was suddenly more interested in. I think it came as a huge shock to him that something could be yep. more interesting than – what he devoted every hour of every day to for so long and yeah. succeeded at, and, and that quite mos- that, that quite possibly could have been burnout. But that's and then you because I don't know the whole situation there, but maybe he started really early and he's pushed really hard and doing too many mm. practice sessions, too many gym sessions, and whatever the, the case may be. I think Ollie Goss may not be Same playing. Thing. No, much he's anymore. done the bridging courses now, oh, a teaching pro in WA. Okay. Yeah. So there's another one, and those two guys would have been ones that, in my opinion. Watching them play and playing with the both of them, they were rock stars that they could have quite easily gone as. So then, there's always that X factor that you can't put into a a teaching program. You can't put that into TrackMan. You can't put those things in to know how we're going to get this guy to have the best time. The human element, and in the age of science, we do everything we can to eliminate it, don't we? Ultimately, it's what makes the decision. It, it's a hundred percent. It's uh, if someone's got the desire to get there. Uh, there's not much that's going to stop it. And that was always my thing was that uh, it was persistence, just persistence and persistence. Uh, I had a lot of knockbacks, a lot of times I missed Q schools by shots and all sorts of things, but I just wanted to do as well as I could. And we'll talk about some of the agony and ecstasy in a minute, yeah. I guess. You said before that you feel like there's more money, but it's for lesser people. What did you mean by that? I'm intrigued by that. Well, uh, I just get the feeling that uh, the Australian tour – as good as it's done, um, it's not as big as what it was when I was uh, first came now. out. Two events. The Australian uh, Open and the PGA, really. In terms uh, yep, two big, major events. Two yep. major, well, Vic Open, I'm sure. Um, but part of that is sponsorship as well. So sponsorship gets rather condensed. I think the thing that hurt, has hurt Australian golf as well is the fact that you can get Foxtel and you can watch the mm-hmm. PGA Tour on TV at any time, whereas that never used to be the right. case either. So it, it depends. Do you want to go out to the golf and watch the watch it live, or do you want to go and watch it on TV? Um, the the Asian tour is not its own Asian tour anymore. Um, the vast majority of it is co-sanctioned with Europe. So if you go to Q School for the Asian tour, I think unless you do really well, you're only going to get sort of six to eight events that aren't co-sanctioned and that you have to make a lot of your money in. You might end up playing like ten or twelve for the season. But that's really tough when you're looking at you're playing smaller events, but all the the other guys who are already on the order merit are playing for bigger events. So the Asian tour was always separate from Europe. Europe had a massive circuit that was in Europe, and I think they've probably only got maybe half of the events mm. that they used to have in Europe yep. that they have now. So now they play in South Africa, they play Australia, um, which is fantastic for those other countries, but it means that the pot is smaller because you're not playing as many events. Is it time for a world tour? PGA Tour is a behemoth. We know that, and that's unlikely to change in the – well, certainly in the foreseeable future. It is so incredibly successful. It's a juggernaut. Is a world tour a good idea to oppose that? Uh, I, Well, the European tour would be the only thing 
to use that, but I can't see – I couldn't see the PGA Tour giving up. They're a long way back, aren't they, the European Tour? Yeah. If you look at the KPIs, I think, the column of money and purses and events, there's a – Most definitely, and it's hard, and I was just talking with uh, – I had a practice round with David Howell, who's on some one of the PACs or committees or whatever Former it is. Former Australian on the PGA Tour. champion, yes, following exactly. around New South Wales with yep, Robbie Willis. And so, a lovely bloke. And yeah, champion bloke. So we were discussing that, is that – now, there was a young guy who'd just come out of the Challenge Tour that was playing um, in the Rolex series, mm-hmm. and he was doing very well in the Order of Merit. He might have been in the top 10 and had a chance to win. Would I, If I said Victor Perez, does mm, that sound it like does, it? It does, yeah. Did he okay. win at St. Andrews, maybe? Possibly. So he skipped one of the Rolex events. Um, now, this is a Rolex event, which I think they're worth about $8 million, eight million US. US yeah. Okay. Seven of them, I think there are. So basically you can't – when you've got guys that are willing to skip a tournament worth $8 million, whether it's for scheduling or whatever it is, um, it makes it really hard for the European Tour to work out a schedule mm-hmm. and to work those things out to compete against America when guys are still willing to skip an $8 million tournament. Money's been fantastic for the game, I suppose, in a lot of ways, but that's the downside of it, is it not? We're, we're now at a point where – the really top players have so much money that you can no longer use it to lure them to Australia, for example. Australia, you you almost can't pay them enough no. to come to Australia. McElroy won $15 million in one week in October at the Tour Championship. $15 million yeah. in a week. Yeah. That's- and, yeah, so you can't offer a guy a half a million dollars or a million dollars to go and play because he's – Already won fifteen million dollars, and that's not even for the year. No, that's right. Um, that was for the week. So you have to find another way to actually attract players. Um, Any thoughts on that? Does Australia have something to offer that's unique? Australia does have a fantastic thing to offer because we get, as a general rule, we get fantastic crowds. Um, and I know in Europe they struggle to get crowds, and so quite often uh, you don't get a lot of atmosphere. So the the more often you can have a tournament with some atmosphere and some have have some people around it, that's what a player is going to pick. If you've got two tournaments with it's the same prize money, one that doesn't have any people there and one that has a great atmosphere with lots of people, I know which one I'm going to play every time because I, I love to play in front of people. I love to have that enjoyment. Um, and I that is the way that I see it going is the – Better tournaments are the one with the best atmosphere. The waste management in Phoenix always gets a strong field. Uh, the tournament in Charlotte, which I'm not sure, it used to be called the Wells Fargo or something or other, I think. Uh, Wachovia or something, maybe. It used even. to be called Wachovia, I think now. Is, oh, yes. It's, anyway, I think the one at Quail Hollow. The one at Quail Hollow, that's a fantastic tournament that you get everyone to. So your scheduling has to be important there and the golf courses and the people that you get there. Yeah. It's a. If I made you the czar of Australian golf for a day. What would you do to fix Australian professional golf? It's such a multi golf is such a multifaceted hairball. You pull one string here and things move over there. But for the professional game, uh, what I would try and do is I would actually try and have golf in Australia run by one body rather than have professional golf and amateur golf. That sound you heard was a can of worms opening there, Dave. Uh, it's <laughs> quite well possible, and oh, for sure, I understand that. Um, but it'd have to be better to be able to have one body running it because I, I do know that I've had people that have uh, had ideas to have apps and things for golf clubs to help 
enjoyment and in play and things, just leaderboard apps so that you can, everyone who's playing in the competition of the day can click on their phone and they can see how everyone's going. So you've got a running leaderboard basically. And so he said to me, I want to go to the PGA and put it to them. And I'm like, well, I'm not really sure if they might be the best people to do it because they don't Australia. run the golf club, so that's and and he's like, well, I don't understand how that works. The then. Golf Australia don't run the golf clubs either. They just the golf clubs are there. They're affiliated with yeah. them, and so in which case it makes it really hard to take those sort of things if you're not sure whether you go to the PGA, to, do you go to Golf Australia, do you go to Golf Victoria, do you go to the Victorian PGA? Who do you go to if you want to run a golf tournament? Mm. Um, I think it would be much easier if there was necessarily one body, but. Um, I understand there's a lot of politics that goes back a long way. Um, you have to start with a big picture, though, don't you, if you want to get there? It's not dissimilar to golf, is it? I'd like to be a pro. Well, before I get there, clearly I'm going to have to do better than 35 putts around and I'm going to have to do better than four fairways around. You know the problems sure. are there, but if you want to get there, you know that you've got to work through them to get yeah. to the ultimate goals. So. Yeah, most definitely. And then the other thing that I would do, and this is not necessarily professional golf, and I understand we're starting to do it a bit now, but as much as I could, I would be trying to take golf – to kids and to schools and get as much many kids even just ex, just exposed to golf because uh, you see AFL football, footballers go to, the, to schools all the time um, just to get kids t- to see what a golf club is, what a golf ball is, what it does, how fun it is just to whack a ball around. And that's how simple it can be to get people into it because otherwise golf struggles a bit with um, – with its participation levels with young kids coming into it when you've got such a big competition with, and I see with AFL or soccer or whatever it is. And now the iPad and the, the phone well, as well. That one, that one too. <laughs> Which exactly. is affecting all of those sports. How does the What's your thoughts on the image of the game amongst non-golfers? I bang on about this. A lot of people have turned off because they've heard this from me before. It feels to me like the perhaps the biggest problem golf has got is its image with non-golfers. And so – Councils can close golf courses and nobody complains because non-golfers don't care. They think golf is for rich people, yep. uh, preppy kids, guys who've got money, and middle-aged, overweight, white guys who wear horrible, loud clothing. Is that – we know that's not true about golf, but how important is that? I, I would say that image is more as uh, an American image because I'd, I'd say more often than not, golf in Australia, and Australia in general, doesn't have – there's nothing really super elitist about golf in Australia, whereas in America there's plenty of places that they want to close you off and not let you in. Um, I, I think that the best thing for golf is, is an image thing is just to get people out there and mm-hmm. have a bit of an experience of it. I think a lot of people see see it on TV or they see people playing and they don't realise how hard it is. And that's the other thing. Golf is a pretty hard game. So uh, most of the people that play it, don't really play it at a fantastic level. The, well, I'm talking about from my perspective. Of course. It's because the game is just so hard and that that's the hardest thing to getting more participation is to make it maybe find a way to make it a bit easier for the average person. Is the challenge inherently the appeal of it though? Uh, Would you have kept at it if you'd shot 64 the fifth time you played? Well, if there was a different level of it. If I could play one and – It's like a starter kit. Yeah. A, if, a, there was a beginner's a start, slope for skiers. Exactly. And I, I would say that because – and that would be the prime example as, a, as the skier is that 
you know what, you can go on this one, but I want to go down that hill. You can drive a car or you can drive a race car or you can drive a Formula One. Eventually, you're going to want to move on to the next level to challenge yourself. And that would be the way that I would try and work golf if I possibly could, was to start with something that's remotely gives you a feeling of success because so often you get beaten up by the game. We all know that one shot, don't we? And I think a guy we had on one of our other podcasts, Matt Day from WA, you might even know him from Wembley there, said yep. the, the three stages are shot euphoria where you hit one for the first time and it gets airborne and you see a golf shot and that's a euphoric moment. And then there's hole euphoria, your first par or your first birdie. Yep. And then there's round euphoria. By the time you've got to hold euphoria, you've probably got a golfer. Yes. But by the time you get to round euphoria where somebody shot a score, they're very happy, you've got a golfer for life most likely. Yeah. You'll likely not shoot that score again for quite some time either. Yeah, and go- that's the kind of game that golf is, yeah. is that it, it gives you – if it gives you something, but then it takes it away yeah. a lot <laughs> It longer. takes away four times as much of it and makes you wait exactly. again today. You've just walked off the course, David. You haven't had your best round today. Yep. Do you deal with that differently now to what you did 20 or 30 years ago? Uh, can't believe you're sitting here talking to me, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, most, most definitely. I had five over par today. Um, the way that I analyze it has changed a lot. Um, I didn't play horribly badly, too badly today. I didn't drive at any real trouble. But what you find is is that you sit down and you have a, have a bit of a look at it and you say, oh, all right, then I had a couple of three putts, so – that wasn't because I'd hit bad putts. I just misread the speeds. So those things, you've got to be careful what, how you knock yourself about. And then I had a couple of bad holes on two par fives. So I had to double on a bogey. So now that you turn those holes around and instead of being three over, you shoot one under, which is what you would do on those relatively easy par fives. Now all of a sudden you've had a day which is feasible. Do you know what I mean? You shot one under mm-hmm. or two under and – your day's not too bad. You walk away and then you go back tomorrow. So you have to be really careful at where you look at what you've done badly. Um, and I've got better at that as I've got older. Yeah. There's a million ways to shoot five over. One of them is to have an 11 on a hole by doing hitting yes. three stupid shots, and that's yeah. something you wouldn't be happy about. But as you say, two, three punts, and then we miss one shot here and short-sighted myself there. Five over is not hard to shoot, is it? No, it's not. It, look, it's b- – but by any token, it's not necessarily good golf, and you always have your, your good and your bad things. But what I've found is that I'll, I'll accept it a little bit more than what I would have previously. You've got to go back tomorrow whether you want to or not, don't you? You've yeah, got to go back out there. And- well, I don't have to. I could withdraw if I <laughs> wanted to. You your wrist or your ankle. Yeah, or but I, and then again, I've never been able to – I've never been one to do that either. Um, but that's but that's because – and part of that is, is that I've always tried to have the best score possible – and the reason for that is you see a lot of guys that will throw in the towel um, after they've got four or five over and not really try that much. But you don't at that point you don't really know where your game actually is because I birdied I finished I birdied seventeen and eighteen. You were six over at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I birdied seventeen and part eighteen with a, made a long putt there. So you don't actually really know where you stand if you don't try all the way around you don't really know where your stand your game really is you can delude yourself into thinking that you know what it's not really bad it wasn't five over i didn't or or you can go the other way and you just say i'm playing terribly and i want to give up the game um but realistically in if you keep trying you find out actually where you go where you are it can be death by a thousand cuts can't it golf it just throws you small disappointment yeah, after small disappointment constantly and then you just got to try and get over it. Of course, David, you could shoot 65 tomorrow. There's absolutely no reason why you couldn't. 
You're 100% right there. Having said that, though, this golf course has never been a friend of mine. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, it's funny, and this is this is how I've come to enjoy playing golf a little bit more. I stood on a hole today. What was it? I think it was the fourth hole. So there's a bunker on the right-hand side, and I want to make sure that I don't go in it. And, uh, and I say to my caddy, how far is it to the bunker on the right? And he says, 296 yards. And I said, is that to it or over it? <laughs> and so he says, that's to it. I'm like, this game's getting too hard for me when, I have to, <laughs> when I've got 296 yards and I don't have 296 yards to even get to the bunker. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, let's talk about that for a bit. The two, Quite possibly the two guys you played with today. They were younger guys, you said. Uh, Hugo Leon and yeah. Anthony Quayle. So Anthony's had a great year up in Seriously Japan. good player. Yep. Fantastic. A very different game for them, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and and I was actually having a talk with uh, Anthony's caddy. We're having a bit of a chat about it, and it's not it's not a massive difference, but it's twenty yards, which you sort of think, well, that's it is a lot, but it's not a lot. But twenty yards is basically the difference between uh, me and it's probably one club that they're longer than they'd be longer with me. So that that's now a three-club difference where I'm hitting a six-iron, they're hitting a nine-iron. You said earlier, David, this course doesn't – you're not really friends with it. What's that yep. about? I think we all understand there are certain courses that for some reason yep. – surely they're all just golf courses, aren't they? You're a golf pro. You can hit all the shots. What's the difference? Uh, most definitely. But you always there's always times when you stand on a hole, and, and this would be the example on the, the 13th hole here, is that uh, – I've got water on the right that I can't carry, but then there's trouble left if I want to aim it too far left. And traditionally, the prevailing wind plays hard and into and out of the left. So it's just a hole that you stand on you're not comfortable with. So I found that there's a few holes. There's more holes out here that I'm uncomfortable with than I would prefer. The next hole, the 14th, is a is a well, it's a super hard par three that you're coming in with um, maybe a five iron or a six iron or something rather, but the green's not receptive. So I have to, fi- I have to find a way that I can get around those sort of things um, that make – I feel it's just not my cup of tea. Not your sort of course. What is yeah. your sort of course? What, where did you grow up? Uh, where are you I comfortable? Grew up, I grew up in Melton was where I grew up and played at Melton Valley Golf Club and at Werribee. Um, my golf course is – like I, I want tough conditions. I, I want a golf course that sits in front of me that I don't have any carries. There may be bunkers either side that, that you can, mm-hmm. but they're not forced carries. Um, I don't like golf courses that are highly treed because I don't shape the ball a lot, and so in which case turning it around trees isn't <laughs> my cup of tea. Exactly. Um, so that would be my sort of thing is a golf course that I don't have forced carries um, and that I don't have to – wind it around trees and that sort of thing as well. Just a course that's straight ahead and uh, I'm all good. All there in front of you, as they exactly. like to say. A couple of years ago at Lake Carinup, you went around the course in, let me think how many putts it was. Was it 21, 22 putts? 20. 20 putts you might have had? Yes. And we all rushed out of the media centre to greet you at the 18th and talked to you about this extraordinary feat and you said, no, it's not the first time I've done it. Uh, no. You know, there's actually – and I actually think there might have been two times because I think I might have done that. I think I shot 64 at the Vic Open a few years ago, maybe two or Ooh, three years ago. Oh, that's now. Yeah. I think uh, I might have had 20 putts there, but then also mm. playing the South Australian Open at Royal Adelaide, I think. I was playing with Richard Backwell and another guy, and uh, I didn't think sort of much of it at the time, but uh, – 
playing, yeah, walking onto the 18th tee. The guys were there uh, busy waiting for me and I'm like, uh, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? They said, well, we want you to chip in the last hole because then you'll have 18 putts for the round. So as it was, I turned it, hit it onto the green and two-putted it, so I had 20. So, Who putts that well at the age of 48, David? Um, look, I've always been – okay at it and that's I spent a lot of time practicing it I, I guess I don't know maybe I worked out early on that I needed to be a good putter and have a good short game to be able to to compete and, and fortunately it's been okay for me um, your eyes are obviously still good I imagine you get them tested from uh, time to time yeah you? I do I have uh, I have a little bit of a trouble seeing distance wise but the problem with that is, is I can wear some glasses to see distance to watch the ball land but the problem with that is, is I can't then read my yardage book <laughs> so, <laughs> so how about it I don't know it's all blurry exactly <laughs> so at the moment um, it's just, my eyes have been generally yeah, okay so it's yeah. been good what other strengths of your game what 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 do you need to have the longevity that you've had as a professional golfer, which I can't emphasise enough, is a it's an extraordinary achievement to play golf for thirty years for a living. It, it genuinely is. Yeah, I didn't think that I would get that far, and I didn't want to. I was I was more than happy to retire at about forty with a couple of <laughs> with a couple of majors and exactly. four million in the bank. Yeah, and ten that, million. Uh, that's not how plane. it's been. Um, I think it's the biggest thing is patience and just not beating yourself up too much. Um, I learned that and, and then persistence is the biggest thing is that I just – and I always said set myself a goal to just get a little bit better every year. And so it was every – it was in a six-month block that it was – was my putting a little bit better? Was I hitting more better – good putts? Was my technique better? And working on the right criteria to work out, well, what what am I working on to make sure that my short game is better? Can I hit – Is are the shots easier to hit? Can I hit – Shots closer to the hole. Can I hit good shots out of bad lies? Um, is my mental game better? And I, I always had a thing where I wanted to walk off the course no matter what happened, and I'd be able to say to myself, you know what, you've been successful today. You made sure that you hydrated enough and that you ate enough food on the golf course. The score may have been terrible. Mm-hmm. Everything else may have been terrible, but at least I've done something right today. So but every day I've walked off and you can find something every day to show that you've had some sort of success um, and realising that, you know what, that some people aren't, don't, aren't unable to do that and so that's been your success that day. It's easier not to do it. Isn't it easier to walk off and say, you're an idiot, you've got no place on a golf course, I don't know why you think you could do this. Isn't that the easiest thing to do? That's the uh, maybe, natural thing to want to do. Maybe, maybe, and the golfers are pretty pretty good at that for the most part. But the trouble with that is, is that then – you, if you're beating yourself up, you ha- there's an, there aren't as many people around you as you would like that are actually pumping you up. And if you're beating yourself up, that's one less person you have on your side. The only one you can guarantee that can be kind to you uh, is you, isn't it? Exactly. So. And you're guaranteed that if you – because if you have a bad day, and this would be my example today is that I did have a bad day, if I beat myself up too badly, then I have to find a way to still play tomorrow and get myself up to play. But if I've beat myself down, it makes yourself hard, so hard to get back up and play. So you're riding a roller coaster that's just – it's no fun living your life on a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, most people in their lives, if, if you've got a regular job, it's a very mundane you – do, you don't have super highs and lows. But play as a professional athlete, you have super highs and super lows. So if you can sort of 
round off the bumps a little bit, you'll do much better. It's a crazy way to try and make a living, isn't it? On the emotional roller coaster that is any sport, but particularly golf. It's lonely, it's expensive, <laughs> you can't do it at home, you can't sleep in your own bed, you probably haven't got pets and traditionally haven't been able to have pets because yep. you're away so Most often. Definitely. And there's so many things to recommend against it, isn't there? Yeah, well, most definitely. But to me, the rewards that you get out of it from having even the small success, successes, even just it might be just heading out to the to the golf to- the golf tournament, or say it's the Australian Open a couple of weeks ago, where I made the cut on the number, and then but then the whole idea is is that well now I want to jump the leaderboard, mm-hmm. and so just a little success quite often just making a cut is enough to keep you coming back and wanting to keep playing, and I like the idea of being able to compete. And my challenge now, the way that I look at it, is finding ways that I can compete with guys because there is a lot of things that I am not super competitive with. And it might be length and it might be certain shots that I can't hit anymore. But now the way that I like to look at it is that how can I find a way to beat uh, someone who hits it further than me or does something else better than me? What can I do better than them that they're not doing as well as I can? We had Peter Senior on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. And he's not the longest hitter, as you know, but an extraordinary performer, particularly under pressure. Give him a sniff and he wins. And he said that his mantra for his whole life has been, none of that matters. It's the score that matters. If you can post a score, it doesn't matter if somebody hits it 50 yards past you or wedges it better than you or putts, but they've got to post a score too. It doesn't matter how you do it. A hybrid to six feet is the same as a wedge to six feet. Most definitely. That's what you've got to do to hit it to six feet, then that's what you do. It can be very hard to remember that, I would imagine. When you're out, particularly particularly with the length thing, which has become so obvious, and as we get older, we get shorter, you can't help but notice how much further guys must hit it. It'd be easy to get down about that. Uh, well, not for me necessarily because I've, you've re- what I've been relatively good at as well is that realising, you know what, I can't hit that shot. I can't get it at that pin now. I can try and hit it at it. But the odds of me getting it there are not really that good. So don't and so I'm going to play the money ball game yeah. and I'm going to try and hit it left of the pin and we'll see if I can make a longer putt. Or I'll take a par here and I'll make a, the next hole that I can have a go at, I'll have a go at that one. And so it's just learning to be disciplined yeah. in where, what you do, how you go about having your score and posting your score as opposed to be a little bit undisciplined in trying to do things that maybe you can't pull off. Yeah. I think that's probably the main one for amateurs. What is the main thing? You would play a lot of pro-ams, I'm sure, and play with a lot of amateurs on the Champions Tour as well. And I guess there's there's probably some common mistakes that we all as recreational players make. Yeah. The two main ones that you see. The first one uh, I'd see is that I would tell an amateur to hit two clubs more than the club you think you can get there with. Because you hit that you, once. Until you hit, it, <laughs> until, until you hit it past the flag. And in which case, otherwise, if you think it's a seven iron, hit a five. And if you go past the flag, then you can come back to a six. But until you hit it past the flag with a club, take two clubs more. Why are we like that? Amateurs I, especially. I think every, well, I, I think everyone's that way is that uh, you think that you can hit it further than you actually do. 
and that you only remember your really good ones, that you, you whack onto the green, you've played the par three, it's 160 metres and you, you've hit your seven iron 160 metres on a couple of times without really remembering that it was a north wind and it was it was going hard downwind and that it bounced short of the green and rolled on there. <laughs> That's exactly right. So that, that would be the first one. And then the next one I would uh, sort of suggest is practice your putting a little bit more than you do and you're chipping a little bit more than you do. So that would be because that's going to save most people. And every single one of us has heard that a million times and every single one of us has ignored it every single time. Why can't I get better by going to the range and smashing my driver? Uh, well, it just doesn't happen, unfortunately. <laughs> but basically speaking, and this is I see in a lot of pro-ams, is that if you can chip it on the green with your first chip shot and get it on the green somewhere, you're a better chance if you try and do something that yeah. maybe is not in your league and you miss the green with with the with your first chip shot because hitting it on the green with your first chip chip shot is always means you're going to have a bogey no more than a double bogey unless you've had all sorts of troubles going down the hole but get it on the green with your first chip shot and then you can go from there but isn't the flop shot much more exciting to play, David? Just because I blade it eight times out of ten, I've still got two times out of ten where it might land on the green near the flag. Yeah, well, it looks really special here to flop shot, but in all honesty, I don't even like hitting a flop shot too much, and I'm not bad at it. Um, I just like seeing the ball being on the ground and running towards the <laughs> and, and somewhere on the green where you can putt it with your next one, which I think exactly. is the point you're making. 100%. It makes a lot of sense. What's more important, probably more so at your level, but I guess at all of our levels, is it more important to improve the bad or improve the good? Am I better off being a player who turns 80 into 76 or am I better off being a player who sometimes shoots 80 but sometimes shoots 66? Uh, if you're a golf professional, you want to be the guy that is a – 80 shooter, or you hit it like you shoot 80 every week, but you find a way to shoot 70. They're the guys who are going to be really successful because you can teach them to improve their technique or for whatever reason that they're not really a good shooter. Um, I'd rather that guy any day than the guy that is capable of shooting 66 one day and he's a fantastic player, but then you watch him and he goes out and shoots 80 from one day and you don't know why. Um, I always like the guy who can find a way to turn a 75 into a 70. Rather, Tiger, isn't it? Isn't yeah. That Tiger? Tiger's was always that way and he, he would – people, everyone sort of said how well he hit it through that stretch around the 2000 mark. Um, but if you go and have a look at his short game and his putting, it was that was the, the thing that I th- really think set him apart from the other guys. Doesn't hit it in places where it's unplayable either, generally. He always well, misses su- the right. He's so super smart. The that occasional way. time he does miss, he's good enough. He somehow manages to get it in the yeah, hole. Yeah, anyway. and you have a look at a lot of the tournaments that he's won, and he won so many tournaments from in the front that everyone thought they had to do something special to beat him. But if ultimately if they had a kept hitting it into the middle of the greens this, the way that he was, if they had to hold a couple of putts and put some pressure on him, you may have seen a different outcome. Probably not, but you might have. But if but so many people imploded because they were trying to do things that they're living on the edge. When the time you're most likely to shoot 83 is the time you're trying to shoot 63, isn't it? Because exactly. there doesn't tend to be a lot of room for no, something exactly. in between. Who are the best players you've played with and seen up close? And who are perhaps some of the players that we – it's the wrong way to say it. Should have heard of, but never did. Guys, that I'm, you probably knew growing up, you thought, amazing talent, but never made it for whatever reason. Uh, I don't mean that in a disparaging way. There's all sorts of reasons. Why. No, no. The, uh, probably the the first guy who I thought I couldn't believe how well he hit it was 
back in 93, I think, and he just turned professional, I think, uh, was Michael Campbell. We played at Royal Melbourne. And I couldn't believe anyone could hit it the way that he did. He struck it so well. It came off so crisp. Sound. Um, the the sound, different sound. The sound the, definitely the different sound. And at that time, we were still using a bladder golf ball. The other ones hadn't come in until I think the Pro V1 was 2000, I think. So he could he didn't have any trouble with the ball ballooning up in the air and the, the wind and stuff. So he had so much control. So that really impressed me. Uh, Matt Goggin. Is someone who's impressed me incredibly with his uh, ball striking. I played with Jeff Ogilvie. Two uh, beautiful, even-tempered blokes there, Goggin and Ogilvie. <laughs> ne- never lose their cool either of them on the golf course, those two. <laughs> Jeff's a little bit better now, but you're right. But Matt can lose his temper, you're right. Um, but uh, Jeff I played a practice round with uh, in, and I want to say in Florida at the Honda in 2006 when I'm on the PGA Tour. And uh, he must have hit six to eight shots in that round of golf, um, iron shots that finished within four feet of the flag in our practice round. And like guys in practice rounds hit shots closer than usual, but six to eight was a little bit unusual for how good he was hit it. And then it turned out that two months later or three, two and a half months later, he won the US Open. So he was playing fantastic there. Um it's really hard. I played with Daly early on in his career. I thought that he had the most magnificent short game and touch. He'd make the longest swings with lob wedges and had the most amazing control. He's, I've played with him just again recently, so he's lost a lot of that control with his shorter stuff. But um, The lag putting display at the 95 Open might have been one of the great treats of all time, 100-foot putts inside a foot-foot. Yeah, uh, his touch is absolutely fantastic there. Double 802 putter, open (laughs) stance, magnificent stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and so, well, there's another person, and I guess that goes back before a time that you had track man and all those sort of things, and it just shows what can be done even without all the technology. Should golf be for artists or engineers? Is it an art or a science? Both are attracted to it. Uh, Most definitely, but... Uh, as much as you want to make it a science, it's still an art. It's most definitely an art form. Um, and the best players are always the best artists. As much as you put guys on track, man, that the seeing all those numbers on track, man, is not going to help you hit a shot. But like you said, when you've got to hit it off on across the water on the last hole with a pin cut tight and the wind's into out of the left hand side, out of the left, how are you going to hit that shot? Track, man, doesn't actually give you the numbers to hit it. Is that the least favourite wind of the pros? Into off the left. Every time a pro tells me about a difficult shot, it's always yeah, the wind was into and off the left. Is into that- and off the left. I've always yeah, I've always found it harder as well. But having said that, though, I always love practicing uh-huh. uh, into it out of the left. Um, but most definitely, because as soon as you try and hold the ball into the wind, into out of the left, invariably you you hook it, and then if you don't try and don't try and hold it into the wind. You just block it and you let it shove it, it right. right. Exactly. There's no way to get it where you want it to go in that wind. Most and definitely. That's what, it, that's what it feels like. What's the difference at that level, David? You talked about Ogilvy in 06 and, and uh, first time you saw Michael Campbell. And I guess there's a physical thing. Is there something else as well? Is it a way – do certain players carry themselves? Do you? Is there something intangible that you, know, you go, that guy's got something special? You know, I haven't re- – well, I didn't necessarily notice – haven't noticed much of that. And that uh, – there are guys. There are guys occasionally that surprise you that say, "Geez, he was better than I thought." But you can just sort of see that, and I guess maybe it's the um, how calm and how 
easygoing they are with themselves and how comfortable they are with themselves. I think that might be the the success thing is that they're not trying to be something they aren't because they know what they are. And they're the the people that are successful. Um, The ones, the guys who seem to want to do a lot of talking and tell you how good they are or um, they're the ones that I think, you might be a good player, but I don't think it's going to last. Stuart Sink's here this week. Yep. He, he strikes me as one of those first ones that you were talking about. Comfortable within himself. He's a major winner. We know that. You don't fluke those. Yep. Long PGA Tour career. I also don't, I'm not sure that we as recreational players understand how good you need to be to be on the PGA Tour. Um, I guess the way to, the best way to explain it is, is that uh, the, the best golfer in your club plays your golf course all the time and he might have a handicap of a scratch or plus one or two or three or four or whatever it is, which you might be some of the young guns that are they're around. Um, the way that I would explain that is imagine if their handicap now is plus five or plus six, but they don't play at their home golf course every week because you're playing a brand new golf course every week and the golf courses that you play are set up to be as hard as the golf course can play every single week. So it's shooting 600 in your monthly medal every month. Exactly. (laughs) But not at your golf course. Yeah, but not at your golf course and at a different golf course every time. Travel around month to month. Yeah. We're just about finished here, David. You've won golf tournaments, proper golf tournaments, not Wednesday comps like I've won or the occasional monthly. What's it like? What's that like? Uh, You devote your whole life to it, I guess. You do, and I haven't won many. So uh, nobody. Well, for the most part, people don't do they? The losing percentage in no. golf is probably closer to ninety nine point eight than it is to. I'd <laughs> to have to sit else. down and have a look, but I'd have to play. I'd have to say I've played close to maybe uh, five hundred to seven hundred golf tournaments, and I think I've won four four round tournaments. So I won the Victorian PGA in twenty thirteen. Actually, no, maybe that's one more five. Maybe I won twice up in China. Yep. I won 2014, two times there, and then I won uh, the Gila River Golf Championship, I think it was, in uh, in Phoenix. Web.com? Yeah, web.com. So that basically, I think that was my first real big one that I'd won, and that one uh, it was an interesting thing because it was uh, – I'd played fantastically well. I, I my I'd come into the week playing poorly. I had my coach there, and we'd, I'd worn him out on the range. I'd changed clubs, uh, <laughs> tried new hybrids and all sorts of things on the range. Um, and as the week progressed, I started playing better and better, and um, I couldn't shake the other guys. It was John Mills was his name. I'd shot eight under the first day, I think, so I was either at or about the lead all week. And then uh, it was coming down the 17th hole. We were tied. 17th to par five, we both get in two. And uh, and I said to him as we we're walking off the tee, and I still remember this, and I'm like, there's nothing – I said to him, I said to John, there's nothing better than walking down the last couple of holes being in this position when you uh, en- enjoyed the competition, whereas previously I never enjoyed the competition oh, that much and okay. never really did super well with it. But that was about the first time. And so I birdied – we both birdied the, the 17th, and then I hit it into about six feet – on the 18th, and uh, I hold that for birdie to win by shot. So that was the first one. So, But that week I had my A game, played as well as I could, um, and I thought you needed that all the time mm-hmm. to win. This is something else. Golf exactly. pros also tell you that. Exactly. But in, in so often you hear, I oh, know you don't need your A game to win every week, and I'm like, well, I haven't seen that. Um, and then the next time I won, I think, was the – 
Victorian PGA, and that was at a little course called Creswick. And I think I won by two shots, but I shot a fantastic third round. I shot maybe six or seven under around a golf course. It was really hard to do that sort of thing. And then held on and finished. Finish, I think I won by two shots. So it was a, it, it wasn't cut two shots that are, seems comfortable, but it's not really because you no. can lose two shots. <laughs> Any time. Anyone who's played um, the game knows how little two And then shots I think are. I bogeyed the last hole to, to win by two at that, I think. So that was comfortable coming up the last hole, although that in itself gives you uh, nightmares because you can stand <laughs> on the tee, there's out of bounds on the right-hand yeah. side, and you know that uh, don't blow a three-shot lead. Yeah. So, so the mental state that you get in there is – um, don't mess up must be a predominant thought often in golf. Just don't mess it up. Yeah, most definitely. And that's the thing. It's, it's like a dangerous thing a to three, finish, isn't it? Whereas quite often if you've got a one-shot lead, you're more focused on what you have to do and knuckling down in because it's, it's almost not a lead, is it? One shot. You know how quickly exactly. you can disappear. So exactly. you, on paper it might be, but it's not really exactly. anything. Um, so I got around that one. And then the next one was uh, I was playing up in China and I think I'd opened up a five-shot lead or a four-shot lead um, through three days, and, and it was a windy day the last day. Um, and I got off to a fair start and, and kept got a five shot lead. And so, I actually, that was an interesting thing because I had to start playing mind games with myself because no one was really that close. Mm-hmm. But to uh, I was starting to, I was playing myself and trying to think, all right, well, let's get it to 18 under, let's get it to 19 yeah. under, let's get it to 20 under. So, I was stayed focused there and ended up winning by five again. Um, so that was that was really fun, but you know that you've done that. And then the, the next one I was playing, it turned out I was playing with Bryden McPherson and I'd opened up a big lead, maybe three or four shots through three days again. And uh, and I think I might have been with maybe three or four holes to go. I think I might have had a four-shot lead. And um, I made a bogey coming in. I made a bogey on a really tough hole and Bryden McPherson, who I was playing with at the time, uh, hold his second shot. So all of a sudden I had a four-shot lead. I think it might have been all of a sudden now that was only one. Three shots in one hole. And then I bogeyed, I might have bogeyed the next hole. So all of a sudden <laughs> now we were tied. Um, and then as it turned out, I made a birdie coming in and, and Bryden made a double bogey on another hole. So it was a two-shot win. But And it seems like at the end of the day, you see, look at the results. Mm-hmm. I'd go see. back now and go, we've had a comfortable win in uh, yeah, <laughs> two Exactly. Shots but if you actually sit down and have a look, and you go through all majors and that sort of thing, you have a look and they say, oh, that was a comfortable win. That, But it actually is not as comfortable as you think. So everyone thinks that two shots you've, as a player that you're feeling okay. This is not at any point you're feeling okay. 2,000 US Open, that was comfortable, wasn't it? 15 shots? You'd yeah, I think, fairly that, comfortable with I think that? that's pretty good with time. <laughs> <laughs> and Tiger at that point is probably really, really feeling comfortable that he's got the, ed- the edge over Ernie. He was almost unbeatable, I think. For that period there, for it was that uh, the end of 2000 and then early 2001, because that was the Tiger Slam, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, 2000 to 2001, that's right, yeah, on, the, exactly. on the Masters in 2001. A couple of things to finish up. Uh, I know I've said that twice already, but this yeah. one really is. What, what was your take on Tiger winning the Masters this year? And what's been your take on his career? As a golfer, you can't help but look at him. I don't know for you, probably not so much now, but for a long period there, he's the competition. You have to look at him, what he does, and think, can I figure out a way to beat him? Uh, well, I really didn't have the the. I didn't have anything that would beat Tiger um, on a regular basis. No. Everyone has their days and weeks where you play really well. So on your day, more than more than uh, comfortably, I would feel like I can compete with him mm-hmm. and beat him. But over a four day period, and as much as as much as I played would play against him, no, I didn't have the length to beat him. I wasn't as physically gifted as what he was either. 
but I was willing to work and to do as well as I could. So I didn't actually enjoy it as much watching Tiger beating everybody by as many because to me it took a lot of the fun out of watching the golf. I like watching golf and watching the challenge between two guys. One makes a birdie, one makes a bogey. It it goes backwards and forwards. It's like a dance where you see someone coming up, like Greg Norman coming up from out of nowhere to try and challenge them. So I'd like that sort of, a, and we'll call it a dance, but I'd like the way that things played out in that regard. And Tiger took that fun off me. <laughs> right? Give it, so back, I, Give it back. So I didn't like watching that so much. Um, but now I actually enjoy watching him a lot now because uh, his dominance is not there, so he has to find a different way to win as well. Um, so it seems like he's more human now especially, and then the fact that the way that he – how uh, well, I say emotional, but how he seems to uh, communicate with all the other players to a degree when he's playing tournaments. I enjoyed watching Tiger play so much – in that regard, that tiger mm-hmm. than the previous tiger that I used to see. Can can you love the game and not enjoy what he's capable of doing when he's on? I watched him at Royal Melbourne last week, and it was just special. That golf course and that golfer was just the perfect fit. Yeah, to see. golfer has a uh, sorry tiger uh, golfer tiger has <laughs> a fantastic good. imagination um, to be able to play so many different shots. Um, that you don't see in many other players, and that's the fun in watching Tiger do something that it's that there's plenty of other guys sure, that can do he's that not the now. Only, exactly, um, but he's but he's the best at being able to do something to say I didn't see that shot, or I couldn't imagine him playing that shot. Um, I watched him hit some shots at Augusta. I was there uh, as a young left amateur kid, Chinese lefty that was uh, – On the Pacific Age. Yeah, he won, but he won two years ago as well, right? So he's just won. He's go back yeah, to the Masters yeah, again. Right, yeah. um, so I went there because I've known him and spoken with his parents a lot. And so I went and actually watch, watched him and was on the range with him while Tiger was pitching. And Tiger had, was having the ability to hit pitch shots that he looked like – for all intents and purposes, that he was making the same swing at it. One ball would land and land one bounce and stop. The next one would land and release. And so I was watching it and couldn't quite understand it. So I would have liked to actually gone and spoken to him about it and said, hey, how do you play that shot? Reverse engineer that. How's he doing um, deconstruction? So his imagination is what I've really enjoyed seeing. And hands, just hands, amazing hands. Yeah, he practices an awful oh, lot in so which case, but – most definitely the hand his hands is fantastic fantastic uh what does the future hold for david mckenzie 52 playing on the champions tour it's as high a, it, it's the premier circuit for yep. over 50s in the yep. world you can't do any better than you're doing at the moment on there yep. what are the what are the goals how long we, how long will you continue this madness for do you reckon uh well my idea has always been has always been that i would get out of golf as soon as it as soon as it pays me more money than I can make playing golf. So in which case I'm more than happy to leave at any point. <laughs> but so far it's I'm doing well enough that I'm not gonna have a job that like I think I won six hundred thousand US uh this year. So good money, isn't it? Chance, it's, it's pretty good. I had a I had a re- I had a pretty good year. And so in which case there's no job that I know that I have the qualifications for to actually earn that sort of money. So I understand at some point it's gonna finish. 
and it'll probably finish sooner than I think. The window um, closes quickly. Don't it seems to close at an accelerating rate. Uh, well, for some guys, some guys in America, I know that I've got to finish in the top fifty-four at the very minimum over there mm-hmm. because I don't have. They have things keeping called, your card and getting your card there and keeping your card is very difficult. Most definitely, yeah. The top thirty-six gives you mo- pretty much most events. Top fifty-four will give you a, a decent number of oh. events. Um, but I understand that I because they have a thing called career money and, and wins that keep all the superstars out there, but that doesn't fit me. So I understand that I've got a 12-month window to do well enough, and if not, um, then I'm more than prepared to walk away from it and I'll do some coaching. Or, I was say what comes after golf. I would uh, imagine you've got a lot to offer. Do, do we do enough mentoring in golf? And do young blokes understand the, the value of the wisdom that somebody like yourself has? I, I think they do, but I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure if they they don't like to ask, or they don't want to bother you, or maybe they don't think that uh, you understand exactly the differences in the game. Maybe the game is different now because they hit it further. Than, mm-hmm. But ultimately, the game is like you said, Peter Senior said, is that you've got to have a score, and that doesn't change whether you hit the ball 300 meters in the air, whether you hit the ball 200 meters in the air. You've got to have your best score, and so in which case doesn't change whether you're a 10 handicap golfer, a 20 handicap golfer, or, or some of the world's best. You can always learn from someone if they can see that uh, you're not putting the best numbers on the board that you possibly can, and the best guys will have done learned how to do that before, I guess. Mm. It's always struck me that we don't see a lot of the younger guys seek out older, older tour players who've made a living playing the game and just ask them about how you do that because there's the biggest thing is and I think because I always did it Mike Clayton was one of the the biggest ones because I used to struggle so much with being in the last few groups of a tournament he played 30 years and made a living playing golf we we forget that I forget it about him we listen to him talk about course design and the state of the game and all the other things that he writes about and whatnot. he made a living he lived and played a lot of time bought a couple of houses and made a living playing golf which is not a lot of people do that no and so I asked him I asked him those things how do you handle the pressure and how do you handle the nerves and things and he says you just need to learn to embrace them and enjoy them um and so he, and he gave me a couple of examples of guys that when they play the Ryder Cup and when they play the President's Cup, the nerves that you have like on the first tee of a tournament and in a major stay with you the whole round. You don't uh-huh. lose those sort of nerves because they keep coming back to you because there's this part that's important, there's this shot that's important. And if you don't enjoy that feeling, then you're not going to perform at it. Uh, Peter Fowler, I used to – Pull aside to still win show- tournaments at fifty eight. Yeah, over over in Europe, exactly. Um, so I used to pull him aside and ask him, "How do you play this chip shot? How do you play this chip shot? What are you trying to do when he was there practicing?" I would bug him with and asking him the questions. How? But how, why are you doing it this way? And how? What are your thoughts on it? And then I would go back and I'd try and work out that for myself how it worked for me. Um, so as many of those things I could ask. I had one question that I asked. Uh, guys on the PJ tour when I was out there, um, I said if you were to, if I were to ask you one question of word of advice, what would be the best word of uh, best uh, advice that you could give me um, as a rookie on the tour? And so all the guys gave me different answers and different different. Uh, that was interesting, but there was one of them that I got that was uh, the best one, and I still use this for guys now, young guys, is that the game that got you on the tour is the game that'll keep you on the tour. 
the temptation to change is strong, isn't it? We see a lot of players. Most definitely. Made that mistake. Dave, it's been fantastic to catch up with you. Really appreciate that. Best of luck tomorrow, first of all. All the listeners will have the advantage of knowing what you shot tomorrow. Yes. I'm backing you to shoot mid-60s at worst. So best of luck with that and best of luck for the rest of this year. And thanks for taking some time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Fingers crossed. Well, I hope you were listening carefully to all of that because, my goodness, there were some nuggets of wisdom in there about the game and how to go about being the best at it that you can possibly be. For those wondering, David's testy relationship with Royal Pines didn't improve on day two. A second round 76, unfortunately, saw him miss the cut. However, as you also heard in the interview, he'll have taken the positives out of that, and a T36 result in his first Champions Tour event of the year in Morocco suggests that he's already back on track. That wraps up episode 11 of The Thing About Golf podcast, but don't despair because we'll be back before you know it with another great episode, this time with a guest who's been responsible for the design of some of the most recognisable golf courses in Australia and around the world, course architect Bob Harrison. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. <laughs>